Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we spend the hour with Professor Stephen Salaita, Chairman of American Studies at the American University of Beirut and the author of Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. Comparisons between the colonization of America and the colonization of Palestine have become increasingly studied in American universities in recent years. So what are the crucial connections between indigenous America and Palestine? We will ask Stephen Salaita, who is in his book, addresses the many historical connections and parallels between the two respective colonizations. Stay with us. The ongoing Standing Rock resistance movement to protect Native American rights to water and their historic land have revived and strengthened the solidarity between Native American and Palestinian activists in the U.S. and in Palestine. Here is a clip of a solidarity message from artists in Gaza to water protectors at Standing Rock. And we stand with Standing Rock. We are not numbers. And we stand with the Standing Rock. Esra Soleiman, a young student and writer in Gaza, penned an open letter that accompanied the video on Standing Rock resistance. She wrote, quote, Although we are of different color, religion, culture, and place, I have learned, as I read about the protest at Standing Rock, that we have much more in common than differences. When I read your history, I can see myself and my people reflected in yours. I feel in my core that your fight is my fight and that I am not alone in the battle against injustice. She continues by saying that, quote, we are the indigenous people just like you and we suffered the same fate as your people. America's policy of occupation and displacement through forced marches like the Trail of Tears and the gradual transfer of so many of your people to massive impoverished reservations hurts me deeply because it is so similar to the ethnic cleansing of my ancestors by the Israeli military occupation in what we call Al-Nakba or the catastrophe. End of quote. These sentiments are shared by many Palestinians. What can both Native Americans and Palestinians learn from each other's anti-settler colonial struggles? In his new book, Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine, Professor Stephen Salaita argues that American Indian and indigenous studies must be more central to the scholarship and activism focusing on Palestine. Professor Stephen Salaita is Edward Said Chair of American Studies at the American University of Beirut and author of On Civil Rights, Palestine and the Limits of Academic Freedom. Professor Salaita spoke with Khalil Bendib about his latest book, Internationalism, 
Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. Stephen, first, uh, the title of your book. You spell the term internationalism in an interesting and original fashion as inter-slash-nationalism. Before we go any deeper into the book, please explain this concept of internationalism. I'm trying to play around a little bit with the notion of nationalism as it exists as an organizing principle and as a political philosophy in indigenous communities, particularly Native North American communities. And I'm using nationalism in kind of an old-fashioned sense, a, a set of decolonial or national aspirations. And I'm kind of interested in looking at the way that these various forms of nationalism or these projects of national liberation are in conversation with one another and to some degree mutually reliant on one another. But also they're deeply focused on their own sites of liberation while simultaneously being committed to broader principles of global justice. Yeah, so you're trying to maybe defang some of the negative connotations of the term nationalism in what it can be. It can be a narrow, dangerous, racist, and all that. Yeah, or maybe disorienting it or dislodging it a bit from some of its Western-oriented connotations, because in Native intellectual traditions, nationalism very often connotes in different ways, and it's focused on the idea of displacing Native Americans from a positionality simply as U.S. ethnic communities and thinking of them instead as national communities with uh, their versions of nationalism being articulations of those aspirations. So in your book, Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine, one of the central arguments is that American Native studies should be important to Palestine studies. Why is that? Isn't there a more ostensibly successful and hopeful example to follow for Palestine, such as South Africa, for example, or even right. Algeria? Uh, <laughs> I sure, <know. laughs> sure. <laughs> of course, of course. Because some people will say, wait a minute, Palestinians are not uh, as deep in this yet, and they're trying to avoid becoming the new Native Americans with all the terrible things that happened to them. Right. One of the central things that the book tries to do is to push back against this notion that the Palestinians want to um, avoid ending up where Native Americans are or where they ended up, or that there could be more hopeful examples, because there are literally hundreds of indigenous communities in North and South America that are still here, that are still fighting for national liberation, that have made extraordinary gains. So in lots of ways, I want to put forward what seems to be a counterintuitive notion that Palestinians will be in a good position if they follow the path of Native Americans. That is, they will have survived the colonization with their identities intact, their national aspirations intact, with their sense of dignity intact. And it's part and parcel of colonial discourse in the first place that it's such a widespread belief that the Native Americans were fully exterminated, or if not exterminated, then subjugated. I kind of want to move us away from these old-fashioned colonial discourses and into a recognition of Native communities as very much alive, very much engaged in struggle, very much engaged with their own worlds and the worlds around them. Yes, plus you're broadening the definition of Native American. We're not just talking about the United States of America or Canada. We're talking about the whole continent. That's correct. So one fascinating part of your book is the strong parallel and connection between the pacification, quote-unquote, of the American continent of, of the U.S. 
so-called manifest destiny and the one happening before our very eyes or trying to happen in Palestine, the mutual biblical inspiration between the two conquests and genocides, the conquest of the West and the narrative of salvation, redemption, and destiny. Tell us more about that. I'm happy to give it a try. There's, <laughs> there's actually so much material yes. uh, that, that we can collate and sort of sift through when, when it comes to the biblical origins of U.S. exceptionalism and then how, of course, it's been taken up, I think, in more obvious ways in Israel as a central feature of Zionism. But basically, if you look at a lot of the philosophical moorings of U.S. exceptionalism, they're essentially biblical, and they're rooted even more particularly in some of the Old Testament narratives, specifically the narrative of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, where God commands the Hebrews to cross the River Jordan and to slaughter the indigenous peoples of the Holy Land, the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and so forth. And this is a narrative taken up in large part by U.S. settlers to what's now known as New England. The Puritans were really into it. Cotton Mather is one of their primary theologians that put this story into use, this parable or even this metaphor into use, and kind of interpreted it in a literal sense. So the early North American settlers very often conceptualized themselves as Israel in the wilderness. And not only did they have to tame that wilderness, but they had to overcome and conquer a hostile indigenous enemy, and they had to do so on behalf of a much greater godly project. And they were doing so with the specific imprimatur of God. And so this is a kind of story of foundational narrative, you could say, that transcends the Atlantic, that was taken up even in a lot of the secular incarnations of Zionism, because Zionism doesn't exist without the originary biblical story that ties modern Jews to a particular landscape. These aren't stories that are based on an indigenous Jewish inhabitants of Palestine, which of course has existed for hundreds of years. We're talking about an originary narrative that purports to ingather the entire Jewish diaspora into Palestine based on a particular story or based on a particular event or an interpretation of history. And that event or that interpretation of history is deeply implicated in the settlement of the United States. So there's a lot of back and forth going on between the two. It's one of the reasons why Zionism as a political project, and I guess depending on how you want to define successful, a successful political project in the sense that it worked, it created a state, is something that's deeply familiar to Americans. Americans identify with it. It just sounds right to them. The idea of a scrappy underdog with a godly imprimatur overcoming hostile natives and draining the swamps and creating something new and beautiful and modern and democratic out of a savage wasteland, it resonates in the American consciousness because these are the terminologies of U.S. exceptionalism and those are the terminologies that nearly every American is inculcated into. Yeah, what strikes me is someone who was born a colonial subject myself. I was born in Paris uh, from Algerian parents who escaped the colonial war and came here at age 20. I was always very much aware of the parallel between what happened here and what's happening in Palestine and very much focused on this attempted replication that the Zionists and Israel were trying to execute in Palestine. And I was always very much aware that a lot of these Zionists come from this country in the first place, and that they're remembering what happened in this country, and they were inspired by it, you know, the conquest of the West. Over there is the conquest of the East. <laughs> go East, young men, go East. 
But this story of American colonialists being inspired by the Bible, I wasn't so much aware of. So it's ironic that it's coming back full circle and inspiring now the Zionists in Israel who take America as a successful example and inspiration for their project. Exactly. And one of the reasons that it functions so smoothly, for the most part, there are wonderful sites of resistance, but one of the reasons it functions so smoothly these days and has for the better part of 50, 60 years is that there is a tremendous amount of economic interest and foreign policy interest and, yes. and geopolitical interest in this sort of convergence between the U.S. and the Israeli narratives. There's just a lot invested in it. And the world is very much ordered around this particular alliance and its benefits to capitalist classes around the globe. Yes, and I'd like to come back to that. That's a very interesting chapter you have or a passage about this very idea, but I'd like to come back to it at a later point in this interview. You argue in your chapter titled How Palestine Became Important that with the shift in tactics and philosophy that came with the BDS boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, the issue of Palestine suddenly became more intelligible to U.S. opinion, especially among younger people and that it mimicked some of the familiar tactics and philosophies of nonviolent resistance adopted by civil rights here in the USA, and that as the nationalist Palestinian agenda became less prominent, a less prominent feature, and became more about equal rights for all, regardless of nationality and religion, more Americans have been able to latch onto it as a cause they can identify with. Is that what happened, in your opinion? some degree, that's accurate, yeah, probably to a large degree. I got involved first in Palestine, you know, I want to say years ago, but it's actually decades ago. <laughs> but it was very firmly a two-state paradigm, you know, when, when I was a teenager and when I was in college. We were talking about 20 years ago. And the shift in emphasis from uh, statism into notions of binational democracy or universal democracy or whatever you want to call it, that shift has been extraordinary. A lot of it has been because of really intense, significant labor by Palestinian activists and Palestinian intellectuals in conjunction with their allies around the world. But in the U.S., I also see it as having been a rhetorical shift and in turn a shift of strategy away from the notion that Palestinians deserve this little uh, chunk of land in which they can exist and they can be Palestinian and into Palestinians deserve d democracy. And there's a reality of equal rights that we have to reckon with, and we can't forget about the refugees, the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and Syria, Jordan, elsewhere. We also cannot forget about the Palestinian citizens of Israel, which comprises anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of the Israeli population, and that this rhetorical shift has really put a lot of pressure on what you might call liberal Zionists, right? Uh, people who kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, to come straight out and acknowledge that the Zionist project is fundamentally incompatible with this vision of democracy based on a set of equal rights that transcends ethnic origin or ethnic identification as it's designated by the state. Yes. Actually, coming back to what you started talking about, <laughs> that was my next question. You also document how Israel has become, over the decades, a clear international symbol of oppression and injustice beyond even the Middle East through its numerous nefarious interventions on every continent. I was always aware of what they were doing in Africa because oh. I come from Africa. I'm from Algeria. 
but in particular in the American continent, where we had heard from time to time about what was going on in Colombia, but many more places against indigenous peoples outside the Middle East. You document, for example, how the Mexican state actually received training from the Israelis on how to combat the insurrection in Chiapas, which I didn't know. And more examples like that. Rodolfo Lobos Zamora, who carried out the genocide against the Indians of Guatemala in the 80s, proudly said, quote, the Israeli soldier is the model for our soldiers. <laughs> End of quote. <laughs> it's amazing how obnoxious and ubiquitous Israel has been throughout the decades. Tell us more about this nexus between colonialism, imperialism, and just neoliberalism, you know, unbridled capitalism. It's actually quite remarkable to think about the influence that Israel wields on the world stage, given its relatively small population, given its size, given its newness as a state, you know, it's less than 70 years old. This has gone on for a long time. I think it was, in, it was sometime in the 80s that Benjamin Beit Halami wrote a book about sort of who Israel funds and why and who it has been involved with. And it kind of has its hand in all kinds of spots in the globe in explicit and not so explicit ways. A general rule of thumb is that wherever the United States sees a particular interest, a geopolitical interest or an economic interest, then Israel is likely to at least be obliquely involved beyond sort of trying to reveal these connections. And the Central American connection is a particularly gruesome and relevant one. But one of the things I'm pushing against is the idea of Palestine as being isolated to its own geography or isolated to its own region, that actually Palestine is important in the global sense, not just for moral reasons, right? You shouldn't care about the oppression and dispossession of Palestinians for moral reasons, although that's a perfectly good reason to care. But you could care also from reasons of geopolitical self-interest, that what Israel's role in the world is overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, negative. It promotes the same sorts of violence that the United States promotes very often in conjunction with the United States. So it's actually a historical to make a proclamation that Black Lives Matter as a movement is detached from Palestine, or movements against police brutality, or militarization in the United States are detached from Palestine, or that corporate greed is detached from Palestine. All of these things are interconnected. And what's incumbent, very important for scholars and activists and community members of our generation to continue doing the work of not only discovering these connections, but making these connections explicit as a way of broadening our activist strategies and broadening ways that we can be in community with one another beyond these boundaries that we're often apportioned into for the benefit of the ruling class. And that way it becomes a global symbol, Israel does, of colonialism not just at home, but colonialism worldwide, because it rarely ever finds itself on the correct side of these struggles. It's always against indigenous people wherever there's a struggle of liberation. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. Israel is not well thought of in the world. You know, obviously in the Arab world, it's always had a rocky reputation, you know, probably in the Islamic world more broadly. Really, you could say the Southern Hemisphere, but if you look at any survey anywhere around the world about which countries most populations find threatening, Israel is very often at or near the top of the list. It fancies itself a light unto the nations, but its reputation in both Western and Eastern spaces now is overwhelmingly negative. And one of the reasons for that is that it's become difficult 
now, even in the United States, to profess a commitment or desire for social justice, let's say for racial equality in the United States, economic equality in the United States, and simultaneously conceptualize oneself as a Zionist. Exactly. You know, that's the sort of thing that just doesn't fly anymore. We saw that recently with the imbroglio about the women's strike last month, where uh, people were debating, can you be a feminist and a Zionist simultaneously? And I was surprised by how many people that would normally be positioned in the mainstream of U.S. commentary kind of disavowing that connection and saying, it's kind of difficult to be a committed feminist and a Zionist at the same time. And also a lot of uh, gay rights people in this country denouncing the pinkwashing, as they call it, that Israel does, trying to portray itself as progressive because in some fashion it can show that it's a little bit more tolerant towards gays and lesbians, but not all gays and lesbians, <laughs> not Palestinian <laughs> gays and lesbians. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I've observed it over the past 15 years, let's say, ever since this show came to be, that it's become increasingly tenuous, that space where liberals could also be liberal here and some issues, but still be pro-Israel. One extreme example of that, and that's debated, but is to see the overarching, most revered, respected icon of the left, Noam Chomsky, oppose, vehemently oppose uh, BDS when it comes to the academic boycott. And I've had them on this show really strenuously explain to me, or try to explain how it actually backfires on the Palestinians. Palestinians aren't smart if they think this is a good policy to try to conduct an academic boycott that did more harm than good. So we still see, uh, maybe among some of the older folks, this mm -hmm. strange schizophrenia that on the one hand you can be really left radical in some instances and yet when it comes to Israel have this tribalist reflex I guess I would call it. I agree with you. I'd love to go back into your archive and listen to that <laughs> interview. And, uh, yes. Chomsky hasn't been uh, completely consistent. I think it very often depends on the context in which he's speaking or maybe who he's speaking to but on this one despite my uh, extraordinary respect for him as an activist and as a scholar. I respectfully disagree. I think that the academic boycott has had a profoundly positive effect. Obviously, I'm biased. I've been involved with it for many years, but that's also given me an opportunity to have a view of how it functions and how it operates, rather than somebody like Chomsky, who's been involved in other things. This is not his thing. He's not been involved no, in it. No, he's got, a serious, yeah. he's got a serious conflict there, right. an internal <laughs> right, conflict. Right. He exactly. was called you right, right here and call you not serious. He actually said those words on my uh -huh. show. He said, people who disagree are not serious. By the same tokens, we're saying Israel becoming an international symbol for negative influence around the world. By the same token, Palestine has become this incredible symbol beyond even issues of colonization and decolonization. You quote academic Professor Neferti Tadiar, who was a member of a U.S. academic delegation to Palestine upon his return as saying, quote, the question of Palestine is an urgent question of a just and equitable future that is both specific to this context and this people and a general and paradigmatic global concern. Why is Palestine such a global concern? There are a lot of reasons. You've just given me an occasion probably to not stop talking for the next 20 minutes. So well, I'm, That's, I'm, that's I'm what I was trying to accomplish, actually. <laughs> I think it ranges from the 
tactical to the symbolic. Let me just lay out what I mean by those two terminologies. The tactical, that Palestine is a huge site of contestation regionally and globally. The superpowers all have a major interest or a different set of major interests in trying to get this so-called conflict resolved. It's just something that's always been in the news. It's something that captures people's imagination as a geopolitical issue. When we talk about symbolically, though, then I think that's where it has its deepest power. The imagery that early Zionists particularly were able to raise of Israel as the home to scrappy underdog Jewish refugees fleeing the Holocaust, which is not completely ahistorical, by the way. It was a refuge for, for yes, a lot of people, people end up there. Yeah. Right. But they really sort of cultivated the image of Israel as a kind of perpetual underdog. It's a remarkable story, especially the way that Zionists tell it, the way that it's told in Zionist historiography and Zionist mythologies. It's an extremely attractive story. It's an extremely inspiring story. But of course, in order for it to be extremely attractive and inspiring, the Palestinians have to disappear. You have to overlook the whole ethnic cleansing and settler colonization part. They called it a land without people for people without land. Exactly. And so just from that basis alone, it's a compelling narrative. And it's a narrative that fits in well with most versions of national mythology around the world. Almost all national mythologies have to do with underdogs overcoming various forms of oppression and creating something great, creating something that had never been there before, something that's a model for the rest of the world. So the story of Zionism, as told by its mythologies, resonates. But in more recent years, the story of the Palestinians has begun to resonate, a people who have survived colonization, a people who have survived ethnic cleansing, a people who existed precisely to disappear and who defied that obligation, and who are here and who are speaking. And so in leftist communities globally, in particular, the Palestinian narrative is extremely compelling. I think one of the reasons why it's a site of global contestation and a site of global interest is, first of all, we have competing narratives that are both compelling in their own ways and have been compelling in different ways throughout different points in history, in different geographies, but also because most nations of the world, or let me say many nations of the world, feel like however this imbroglio or this situation or this conflict, I don't like any of those terms, but whatever you want to call it, however it gets resolved, is going to have a profound effect on a much broader set of geopolitical conditions. So people feel invested in it, whether or not they identify you know, as Jewish or Palestinian or Arab or Muslim or anything else. Everybody feels invested in it to some degree. And also now, I think Palestine has, you know, at least on the global left, it's not in contest anymore. People will have arguments about terminology, and people have arguments about uh, strategy, but now you cannot legitimately be a part of a global left and doubt the veracity and the fundamental justness of the Palestinian cause. It's easy to rally around that because it doesn't lead to the same kind of acrimony that debates over Syria or Libya tend to generate. This one is clear-cut. The Palestinians are on the right side of history here, and it's the correct thing to do to support their struggle for liberation. I see that less and less in question these days than I did 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, it's become almost impossible to be a humanist and deny the humanity of the Palestinians. It's become really problematic for people to exactly. reconcile those two. Exactly. 
beyond the issue of Palestine itself, as you were saying earlier, the connections, a lot of it through influence and misdeeds of Israel outside of the Middle East, like uh, training police in the U.S. to commit brutality against their own people here. The Black Lives Matters movement, why does that have anything to do with Palestine? All these connections have made it a global issue. That's exactly the case. The exchange of of tactics and information between Palestine and black communities in the United States about how to effectively react to tear gas. There are all kinds of interesting conversations and modes of dialogue, but at the level of state power and particularly state violence, the connections between the U.S. and the Israeli states run deep. So Israel is not only training police forces all over the United States, but, you know, they share weapons, they share technologies. Israel has been shown on numerous occasions to use the Palestinian population as guinea pigs so it can test out new weapons technology. It's done that in Gaza on numerous occasions, and that technology gets transferred back into the United States. The attacks on Palestinians and the attacks on black communities, native communities, ethnic minority communities in the United States are in no way isolated. The material connections go on and on and on, and they've been well documented by a number of activists and journalists and scholars. And so there's already an occasion for Black Lives Matter and Palestinian liberation activists to get together simply because their sites of oppression are shared. But more than that, I think that they have strategic occasion to get together and to talk with one another. I think this is particularly important for Palestine solidarity activists who are located in the United States, who are born and raised in the United States, especially because the behavior of the United States government is a particular concern for them as well. And expressing their solidarity with their uh, black brothers and sisters becomes particularly important, not only as a moral, but as a political obligation. And also the dynamic of hyper-capitalism, neoliberalism gone berserk, where... You have now the notion of surplus populations, and that's not limited to Palestine. That's exactly the case. We see this problem growing. The most acute and obvious side of this problem is Gaza, where you have somewhere around 2 million people in a space roughly twice the size of Washington, D.C., which is to say a tiny space. Washington, D.C. isn't a big territory. No. And, so, <laughs> and Israel explicitly treats the population of Gaza is surplus. Not only does it test weapons, not only does it dictate the amount of food and medicine that can go into the territory, but it's kind of washed its hands of any claim for Gaza being part of the Zionist vision of a greater Israel. In other words, there are two million people there and they don't know what to do with them. They want to keep them boxed off, imprisoned in this tiny little territory in perpetuity, and they don't want to have to deal with them. They had to find ways, of course, when they began the blockade to replace the cheap labor in the Israeli marketplace. We see the same thing in the United States. It's more diffuse. It's not necessarily as obvious, but it's, it's there. And I think so many of these shared tactics we see among the U.S. and Israeli governments have to do precisely with the management of what they consider to be surplus populations. It's not merely surplus populations. Surplus populations that are restless and surplus populations that represent problems that must be solved because if those problems continue to linger, they promise certain forms of destabilization that the ruling class and the states will find intolerable. That was Professor Steven Salaita, the Edward Said Chair of American Studies at the American University of Beirut, speaking with Khalil Bendib, 
about his new book, Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. book in your chapter on the BDS which is another fascinating chapter and it, the central relevance of this movement to this country the USA you lay out some of the central values and principles of the BDS movement that have allowed it to be successful in the US tell us more about some of those principles that have made this movement so difficult to contain it doesn't have a structured hierarchy in the way that, let's say, a lot of NGOs do. It's a little bit anarchist in its, its organization, which is not to say chaotic, but decentralized. It's an extremely broad tent. And it, when something exists under an extremely broad tent, it's able to become localized. And so a lot of BDS or even academic boycott happens in specific places on specific campuses. And so you manage to stamp it out on one campus, it pops up in 10 others. You can't Uh, decapitate it. You can't. Yeah, exactly. The Israelis, of course, I don't know if you've been reading about this, but they've been going hard after Omar Barghouti. Yeah. In Palestine, and then putting him in prison. And He's one of the founders of this whole movement. That's correct. And really kind of maybe the most prominent and most visible spokesperson for the BDS movement. And we're all thinking about Omar and sending him our love and our solidarity and our prayers. He's somebody that we love and respect and admire and who we're deeply concerned about. But And Omar will be the first to say this. They could put any individual in prison and the movement will chug right along. It's, it's not dependent on the force of a singular personality. It looks different in the University of California system than it does at the, the East Coast colleges. Heck, it looks different at the University of California, Irvine, than it does at Berkeley. Right? You know, it, it just looks different everywhere, although it's guided by a set of of common principles, but it makes it, I would say, impossible to stamp out. I think that a lot of of countries, including Israel and the United States, are passing legislation to try to outlaw it or to try to curtail it or to try to make it extremely difficult or, or at least threatening to do this sort of work, but they can't do it. It's put together in such a way, and I think this is particular genius, it's put together in such a way that it's impervious to legislative suppression. And it's impervious to state coercion. It's something that just sort of happens because it's adamantly organized around the notion of bypassing all of the norms of the state in order to exert other forms of pressure that don't rely on the extant political dialectics, if that makes any sense. Yes, and there have been no shortages of attempts on the part of local, (laughs) campus, state authorities. They just are not able to get a handle on this. They try to pass laws. They haven't been able to contain it. You listed in your book, in that chapter, 
a number of characteristics that this movement has. You say it's non-hierarchical, it's consensus-based, self-funded, unaffiliated, non-denominational, has no formal position on one versus two-state solution. It is anti-authoritarian, collaborative, and independent. Now go put that one back in the bottle. It's a difficult animal to grasp and press, and that's, I think, part of its success. The beauty of it, too, is that it, it's trying to be the change it wants to see, as Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi would say. Mm. Is it is no longer using the old tactics of hierarchy to implement democracy. It's a more anti-authoritarian zeitgeist that it seems to be following. Yes. One of its central concerns or philosophies, if you will, is practicing or developing the notion that if we cannot develop a set of countervailing power dynamics through traditional political means, then we have to seek unorthodox sites where that those forms of countervailing power can be generated. And I think that's the particular genius of, of BDS and the way that it's structured and organized. And I think what really the... You can't point to a particular moment in time, but what's been pivotal is the transition of BDS from a tactic or a strategy into a consciousness and into a particular rallying point. And so I would argue, actually, BDS has completely outgrown, <laughs> you know, its, its own origins. And it's, it still has a lot of material commitments and material victories that we can point to. But I honestly think it's been most effective at a level of consciousness and a level of consciousness raising in terms of being an idea that people can rally around and an idea that signifies a certain sort of resistance that can't be suppressed in the traditional ways. To come back to that link, the connection between decolonizing America and decolonizing Palestine, you look into this link through BDS as well. You ask the question, how do natives of America help inform and influence the tactics and philosophies of the Palestinian BDS movement? As we speak, for example, we're seeing a truly heroic effort by Native Americans to force the rerouting of an oil pipeline away from their protected sovereign territories. How do the two movements cross-pollinate to mutual benefit? It's difficult to imagine many circumstances in which this, this cross-pollination wouldn't be mutually beneficial. So one of the tasks before us is to make sure that it happens as much as possible and that its productive potential gets realized. First of all, a lot of, of indigenous native scholars have been pivotal to the both the practice and the theorization of BDS, particularly in, in North America. There are a lot of Kanaka Maoli or native Hawaiian scholars who have been central to the movement for, for years, really since its inception. Give us um, some examples. I'd love to hear that. I have in mind somebody like Ehelani Kaunui. She's based at uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, but uh, she's been involved in U.S. ACBI, the, the United States Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel, as a board member, as, as organizer, as, as a theorist since its inception. And she's been absolutely tireless in bringing awareness of Israeli colonization and the, the need for and importance of BDS to audiences really all around the world. She brings it to Hawaii frequently. 
he was a part of a delegation that included numerous native scholars to Palestine a few years ago, and I talk about that delegation a little bit in internationalism. One of my uh, mentors, sort of my chief mentor, Robert Warrior, who is Osage, he's been absolutely critical in not only practicing but helping to theorize BDS. He also is a student of Edward Said's, and so he's had a long involvement in Palestine. So these connections exist in very, very knowable and traceable ways. And so one way I try to illuminate some of these histories to my readership in the book, but I also urge them to seek out the connections themselves and to think about what it means to work to end Israeli colonization from the United States. In other words, what, what does it mean to do Palestine solidarity work in a space, this is the U.S., of course, that is itself colonized, that it is itself a site of contestation and confrontation between indigenous peoples and a repressive colonial government. And so kind of what we on the Palestine solidarity community, uh, this is the way that I put it in the book, what do we expect of Israelis? How do we want them to be in solidarity with us as Palestinians? What are the things they do that are, that are helpful? What are some of the things they do that, that we don't like? What do we find helpful? And we ought to ask ourselves those same questions, those of us who are Palestinian or working on issues of Palestine in the United States vis-a-vis -vis Native Americans. Right? What can we do to help their struggles? What responsibilities do we have to them, given that, that we're, we're doing this work on land that is itself occupied? And by thinking through those questions, we're automatically going to start forging connections that are not only helpful to standing in solidarity with colonized communities in our own midst, right, but also the, the broaden our understanding of what it means to be committed to Palestinian liberation. We are constantly making those connections and it becomes regenerative. And that kind of regeneration is deeply important, both to uh, indigenous communities in North America and to, to Palestinians as well. I love this uh, focus on the irony of doing BDS in this country itself a poster boy for colonization. Right. We see it it's still going on. We tend to think of it as in the past, but Dakota is a good example. California is a good example. Right here in Berkeley, we have these shell mounds that we're constantly pushing back a little further and saying, oh, actually, that one here has good commercial potential, so maybe we'll, we'll find some native from the tribe, pay him a little something, and ask him to be the spokesperson who says it's okay to build on this shell mount after all. So it's right. still happening as we speak. Give us a couple of tips maybe from this wisdom of Native Americans who've been there for so long that informed the struggle in Palestine. What kind of wisdom is gleaned there? What kind of experience, what kind of stories? You know, I think it's a, a lot of it has to do with the work of survival, and the colonization in, in North America has obviously been going on for hundreds of more years than it has in Palestine. So the work of survival, there are multiple forms of wisdom inherent to the mere fact of survival, despite so many attempts at extermination or assimilation. But more than that, what it means to remember place and to make place central to one's identity, and use it as a basis for keeping your language extant, keeping it in existence, passing it on to future generations. It means to maintain social relationships in the face of colonial restructuring. 
right? because one of the things colonization does, of course, you know this from the Algerian experience, right? we know it from South Africa, we know it from Palestine, we know it from Australia. One of the things it tries to do is break down and reorganize familial and social structures. And by doing that, it breaks down the society and makes it weaker and makes it thus easier to colonize, easier to defeat, easier to uh, keep resistance in check. And so we, we see in Native communities, not only in their modes of activism, but in their intellectual work, in their storytelling, we see what it takes to keep your essential identity alive despite continual onslaughts and the continual desire for its extermination because in the end it's seen as an inconvenience and it's an inconvenience that modernity needs to overcome that modernity necessarily must overcome right? uh, in order for modernity to function in order for self-image of the united states to achieve its full potential natives have to disappear and so what, what I think we can learn for those of us who are interested in Palestine and for Palestinians, particularly from Native communities, is what it means to do the work of survival. Because survival requires work in these conditions, in these circumstances. It's not just granted. It's not a given. It requires labor. It requires effort. And it requires a constant commitment and recommitment to keeping ourselves alive, based on not only how our ancestors live, but based on the kind of world that we want to hand over to our descendants. Part of that battle is the Palestinian demographic rate of refusing to disappear through high birth rate, and that's a little bit what the Algerians had to do as well. Mm. <laughs> One reason the French couldn't eliminate the entire populations that were reproducing faster than the colonizers. One story <laughs> that came to mind as you were speaking about the importance of memory and names, keeping names of places. After France was out of Algeria, after independence, all the names that had been changed of cities and small towns and villages had essentially been turned to French names. Of course, instantly we reverted to the old Arabic names, and some of them we didn't remember. <laughs> One village near where I come from was named after this famous thinker whose last name happened to be France, Anatole France. That was his name. So that was the name of the village. So a joke says that somebody just crossed out France and called it Anatole Algeria. <laughs> so that's uh, what you go through when you're colonized. In that same chapter about BDS, you caution, you say an interesting thing. You say BDS can function inside America only if at the same time it manages to transcend its own nationalist paradigms. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to suss out some of the differences. I mean, one of the things, the recurring theme of the book, something that I keep going back to, is the location of our work. And it's obviously influenced by somebody of Arab origin, Arab parentage, who was born and raised in the United States. So I'm, I'm interested in the question of what it means to be concerned with a region that I have a connection to, but that I actually didn't grow up in. These are a set of questions that I think a lot of uh, first, second generation uh, children have. And so I'm interested in thinking through the question of what it means to do BDS in Palestine, as opposed to doing BDS in the United States or, or Canada or the UK or anyplace else that's not Palestine or even the Arab world more broadly. And it, it seems to me that there's a fundamentally different set of rules, even if our notions of what BDS ought to entail remain consistent. In other words, doing BDS in Palestine 
probably has fewer obligations attached to it than doing VDS work in the United States. And I know that, that probably instinctively a lot of people want to argue with me when I say that. And so let me try maybe to assuage any, um, any misgivings they might have. I think that it's wonderful if people in the West Bank and Gaza and Jaffa and Haifa and Shatila here in Beirut, if they're concerned with uh, Native American liberation and decolonization. It's so wonderful. It's wonderful if they're concerned with, with oppression anyplace else in the world. But I don't think that they necessarily have any sort of, of moral obligation to work on it, given their location, in the same way that those of us who are working in the United States do. We don't have the luxury to ignore it because in our own ways we're complicit in it, mm -hmm. right? in a way that people in the West Bank aren't. Absolutely. Right? I think there are all kinds of good reasons for people in the West Bank or Gaza to think about it and to engage with it, but it doesn't have the same sense of moral urgency that it does for those of us who are in the West because, again, we, we have a, a different positionality that we have to tend to that goes beyond Palestine. And so for the United States specifically, when I think about doing BDS work in the U.S., it's, it's not just a concern of Palestine. Although liberating Palestine is, is the primary concern and the ultimate goal, we also ought to think about what it means to conjoin our Palestinian liberatory politics with the liberatory politics that already exist here in the United States. Because it's deeply important for us to think about ways that, that, that we can do that. And also avoid the old schizophrenia we were previously talking about, of being very fair-minded and focused on the morality and the fairness of the struggle in Palestine, but not so much in the place where we live. Exactly. Uh, you weaken your case and you weaken the cause by doing that. Exactly. And you can find yourself, even if unintentionally, implicated in practices of settler colonization that you're not even aware of. One question you also ask in the BDS chapter is how do you measure, by what yardstick do you measure the success of BDS, both here in the U.S. and back in, in the Middle East? How do you measure that? There are all kinds of, of different criteria that you can use and that people do use. There are some pretty politically astringent people who will not define success as anything other than the liberation of Palestine. So by that metric, nothing is working. <laughs> Or maybe nothing's working fast enough. Maybe it's, nothing's it's, working, exactly. Nothing's worked yet. Right? Right. <laughs> so we're all working towards that point, though. But I tend to measure success by the growth of a community of concerned human beings that exist internationally, to, to borrow a nomenclature from my book, that, that it simultaneously raises awareness, you know, creates economic pressure, gives headaches to administrators and, and politicians, creates the requisite anxiety among the Israeli political class and the Israeli elite, that, in other words, that it keeps going, that it keeps surviving, that it keeps doing what it's doing. We can talk about a metric of success in terms of, of divestment resolutions getting passed on college campuses and in scholarly associations, and that's one metric. And, and I think by that metric, BDS has been remarkably successful. But uh, we, we can look at it in, more, in a more abstract sense of that it raises awareness. It's a conduit of conversation. It's a conduit of community. It's a basis for having conversations about what's going on in Palestine and a demand for us to think about ways to end 
Israeli colonization, Zionist colonization, and Palestinian dispossession. So all of these things are net positives as long as they're happening. And so in this sense, I take a very optimistic view of BDS. You could probably a lot of people would call me a BDS apologist, and not that I'm not open to critiques or even criticisms of BDS. Those are important, but I think in the sum total, based on something that's universally accessible for people who are interested in Palestine, I think it's doing really important work, and I think it's successful insofar as it's keeping the goal of Palestinian liberation alive. And that's the most any of us can hope to do given our circumstances. You know, we're not going to start violent uprising in Palestine from Berkeley, California, or from Houston, Texas, right? And that's we do not, what we can given right. the conditions in which we exist. And BDS is one of many things. It's not the only thing you can do, but it's one, and it's one that, that also comes with a certain set of intellectual and organizational rewards. It's been remarkably successful, more than I ever expected. Given the type of resistance that it's meeting with, people keep making the parallel, which I think is justified between South Africa and Palestine. And 10, 15 years ago, a lot of us were skeptical that things would evolve at this pace, that we've seen them evolve. It's been, in my opinion, phenomenal because it's shifted the tenor of the debate, not so much in the establishment media or among the politicians who are the last ones to adjust, but among the populace, among the especially the young people, it's been a remarkable shift from almost obscurity and stereotypes of violence to something that people are considering now. There's an entire people who's been dispossessed and displaced. It's true. You know, I, I was thinking earlier, and I didn't get a chance to say it, but it seems to me that it's getting, especially in the era of Trump, it's more and more difficult to be a liberal Zionist. And BDS has played a significant role in the existence of that difficulty. That it, it has put a lot of people who want to see themselves as civil libertarians and as progressives on the defensive in terms of what it is they're actually willing to do to end the occupation. Because, you know, our entire lives we've been hearing platitudes about end the occupation. We, we, we believe in two-state solution. But then when you present people with the opportunity to do something that has the explicit goal of working to end the occupation, a lot of them opt out of it. And then when they tell you why they've opted out of it, then the hypocrisy inherent to the liberal Zionism sort of uh, it comes on full display, and really a lot of the arguments fall apart. And another thing, BDS is a baby. You know, it's young. It's you know, very it's, young. It's, it's, yeah, it started 12, 13 years ago, barely a teenager, you know, in its modern incarnation. Of course, there have been boycotts of Israel since Israel's existence, especially in the Arab world. But BDS, as a named political movement, is it comes around in 2004, 2005, you know, so it's, it's relatively recent. So I think any time somebody is critically measuring its, its success or failure, it's important to keep that in mind, that in less than 20 years, it's become a globally recognized activist institution, if you will, that you say BDS almost anywhere, and anybody who has even slight knowledge of, of Israel or Palestine will recognize what you're talking about. And nobody would have guessed 
when we first started doing this thing. And I don't want to take credit. I mean, I was kind of peripherally involved at, at the beginning, but BDS comes out of the labor of uh, and hard work and, and devotion and love of a whole lot of people. And I don't count myself among them. I, I came into it a few years later, really. But I was kind of an observer from the beginning, and nobody would have guessed in 2003 or 2004 when this thing was getting off the ground that it would be the central topic of discussion at APAC conferences, yes. that, uh, that the Prime Minister of Israel would be worrying about it, that states would be passing resolutions, that U.S. presidents would be condemning it. That's a, an extraordinary rate of movement for something that hasn't even been in existence for 15 years. Professor Stephen Salaita is Edward Said Chair of American Studies at American University of Beirut. He's the author of Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Beirut. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.